Chapter 27 of Cordelia the Magnificent This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read to you by Tricia Wheeler. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott. Chapter 27 How a Great Dream Turned Out. Slowly, Gladys shrank away from Cordelia, ashen pale, shivering, eyes wide with terror, stricken utterly dumb by the disaster she had been fighting off for years. Esther, Mitchell, Franklin knew the truth, and their only shock was the shock of its suddenly being made public. But to Jerry Plimpton, the thing came as an unbelievable surprise— he gazed across in bewildered stupefaction at Gladys, whose green eyes had turned their panic upon him. As for the reporters, it is difficult to surprise sophisticated, hard-boiled men whose daily routine for years has been the tabulation of surprises. But these men were all gaping with astoundment at this latest development in the story of the wedding day of Cordelia Marlowe. For several moments, the only sound in the library was tense, excited breathing. Then again, Cordelia's voice rang out in accusing triumph. That's the secret you've been paying blackmail for, Gladys Norworth. Francois, your alleged adopted child, is really your own child, your illegitimate child. And then suddenly Gladys came out of her paralysis, as if flung by a spring. It's a lie, she gasped hysterically. She's lying, I tell you. I tell you it's a lie. It's a lie. It's a lie. She whirled about upon Esther, and her frenzied hands clutched her stepsister. Tell them it's a lie, Esther. I can't have people believe such a thing about me. Esther, Esther, remember what you promised. What you promised if ever the time came. The time's come, Esther. Tell them, Esther. Tell them as you promised. Your promise, Esther. Your promise. And then Esther Stevens, for one who had no gifts as an actress, performed a most excellent bit of acting. There was good reason for its excellence. For years, she had been mentally rehearsing the business for some such scene as this and the lines were riveted in her memory by the hammer of a thousand repetitions. Besides, she was acting for the biggest stake, the highest price which life just then could offer her. She caught Gladys in her arms as if to shield her and eyed them all defiantly. Gladys is right. It is all a lie, she cried. Gladys has tried to protect me, but I can't let her suffer or pay for my fault any longer. Francois is my child, and since you make a point of the word, my illegitimate child. They could only stare at her, all silent. For years, Gladys has paid blackmail to shield me, Esther went on. One or two persons even suspected that Gladys was the boy's mother. So long as there was just this tiny bit of suspicion, so long as Gladys was just paying money, I could let her go on trying to protect me. But when Gladys is publicly accused of my guilt, 
then the time has come for me to clear her and admit the truth we've both tried to hide. There, you now all know who's guilty and just what is behind this whole blackmailing business. Cordelia was the first to emerge from the general stupor. But Esther, she protested, you know what you've said is not so. You know you are not Francois's mother. Esther wheeled on Cordelia with a manner which a truly great emotional actress might have envied. Who are you, she demanded, to tell a mother that she is not the mother of her own child? Cordelia turned to Mitchell, and for the first time during this long scene, she addressed him. You know the truth, Mr. Mitchell. You know Esther is not the boy's mother. I know nothing, said Mitchell, that would carry weight as evidence against the words of a woman who publicly stands forth and claims that a child is her illegitimate child. In that dazing moment, Cordelia still retained enough sense to perceive that Mitchell had just uttered a profound human truth. Esther, facing them all defiantly, again spoke. I have just this much more to say. Now that the truth is at last out, there is an end to all this blackmailing. I really have no name and no high position that might be hurt, and I have no money of my own with which to buy silence, even if silence were now possible. And I want to say this also. The ring of sincerity in her next words was not the ring of careful acting. It was the ring of genuine and great emotion. Now that the truth is out, I am proud to be the mother of such a boy, and I hope he is going to be proud of me as a mother. At least I am going to be the best mother to him that I know how to be. Again, there was an odd hush for several moments. The figure of Esther, defiantly proud in her claim of illegitimate maternity, dominated them all. Dominated Cordelia, who knew but could not prove that she was lying. It was Franklin who ended the silence. I think that we will all agree with what Miss Stevens has implied, he said, that we have just had revealed to us a truly noble example of sympathetic womanly instinct in the way in which Miss Norworth has for years striven to shield the good name of her stepsister. And we have had revealed to us the exact opposite of that noble, sympathetic, womanly instinct in the way in which Miss Marlowe has tried to attack the veracity of Miss Norworth by trying to fix upon her an undeserved shame. With your permission, after Miss Marlowe's most reprehensible interruption, I shall again return to my narrative. I have only a few more words to add, and I shall address myself directly to you, Mr. Plimpton, since you are the person most concerned, and since to save you has been one of the chief aims of all I have done. His voice, his entire aspect, suddenly changed. During the greater part of his long statement, his manner had been apologetic, humbly propitiating, to win this originally hostile court to listen to him. Now his manner his voice had the driving, righteously denunciatory quality 
of a district attorney who is at the end of his summing-up speech and who has proven all his charges against the prisoner at the bar. "'That's my case, Mr. Plimpton,' he cried, "'and I've proved it all, "'proved part of it by Miss Marlowe's own admissions, "'proved part of it by numerous documents I showed, "'and proved it as a whole by Miss Norworth's testimony and my own. "'Miss Marlowe entered into a conspiracy to blackmail "'and into a conspiracy to trap you into marriage.' These last several months, she has been keeping up her social position wholly upon blackmail money, and she has been using this blackmail money to help her lure you on into marriage. At last, Cordelia no longer regarded Franklin merely with contempt and anger, blinded by these hot, righteous emotions. At last, she was seeing the devilish cunning of all the man had been saying. At last... She was seeing the direction in which he was driving her. "'It's not true, Jerry,' she cried. "'Not a word of it, except the things I told you. "'The rest of it's lies, all lies!' Jerry's figure was taut, his face white, set. Franklin gave him no chance to respond to Cordelia. "'For the sake of the honor of the Plimpton name, Mr. Plimpton,' I've tried not to carry this thing so far as this, Franklin went on quickly. I tried my best to settle the whole matter privately, without publicity or scandal, so that your name would not be involved. But Miss Marlowe's refusal to terminate your engagement, and thereby automatically closing and hushing up the whole business, has forced me to the present extreme measures." And even yet, Mr. Plimpton, I have not told you all my measures. Acting upon instructions from Miss Norworth, I have drawn up papers in a suit against Miss Marlowe to recover money secured through methods of extortion. You so instructed, Miss Norworth? Yes, yes, Gladys exclaimed quickly, a quiver with wild exultant relief at now being free, free forever, of any danger from the secret which had kept her in shivering fear for almost five years. And, oh, how she was getting even with Cordelia, paying her back. For your sake, Mr. Plimpton, Franklin continued, swiftly picking up while Gladys's second yes was still in the air. I prevailed on Miss Norworth to refrain from starting this suit until I had exhausted all efforts with Miss Marlowe. These papers have for some days been drawn up, ready for filing. I was to make what I knew to be the last possible appeal to Miss Marlowe this morning. I left instructions with my law partner, Mr. Kedmore, that if he did not receive by telephone a satisfactory message by 11 o'clock today, he was immediately to file the papers in this suit. Mr. Franklin drew out his watch and glanced at it. It's almost 12 o'clock. Those papers are now filed. They are now a matter of court record. They are now public property, and I dare say the newspapers have already taken note of them. His last few sentences constituted one of the few facts Mr. Franklin had uttered in the whole of his long, carefully built-up statement. Those papers were a reality. At that moment, they actually were on file. But Jerry! Jerry! Cordelia spoke up frantically. 
The amount they're suing for is nothing, only $20,000. We can pay it and settle the case. Again, it was Franklin, not Jerry, who spoke, and he spoke without permitting an instant's break. The suit cannot now be settled. It is no longer a matter of money. It is now wholly a matter of principle, of duty to society at large, the showing up of a social adventurous, showing the world for its own protection, the practice by which such a woman bleeds society, maintains herself in envied splendor, and carries out her schemes. I have given Miss Marlowe every chance to save herself and to save others, and having given her every chance, both Miss Norworth and I are now determined to force this action forward, in its every detail, to the very last extremity. And I feel that I should say to you, Mr. Plimpton, that whether you marry Miss Marlowe or not, this suit will be pressed on to its bitter finish. And I should also again remind you, Mr. Plimpton, that every charge that has been made, we shall prove in court. Jerry, breathed Cordelia, it's not true. None of it. It's not true. It is true, cried Franklin in his now terrible voice. But even were it not true, and it all is, here is a matter for Mr. Plimpton to consider. Even if it is not true, the world, the whole world, will believe it is true. Mr. Plimpton still is not married to Miss Marlowe. It is still in his power to decide whether he wishes to give the splendid, the honored name of Plimpton to a woman whom all the world will know to be an adventuress, who all the world will know has kept up her social show with money blackmailed from society. It is still in Mr. Plimpton's power to decide whether he wishes to try to place a woman of such reputation in the position once occupied by his mother. Cordelia had the sense that she was falling, 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 dizzily falling with infinite swiftness, falling to an infinite depth of black disaster. But Jerry there, Jerry with the strength of his great position in the world, Jerry could defy all these people. Jerry could still save her, save her by a word. As Jerry's wife, all these slanderous lies against her would collapse to nothingness. Jerry! she whispered pleadingly, Jerry, Jerry. For a single moment, Jerry met the wild entreaty in her eyes. Then his gaze shifted from her. There followed a moment of breathless waiting, all eyes on Jerry. Perhaps Jerry himself never knew just what passed in his brain during that moment. But Franklin had analyzed this man with a scientist's precision. His last words had been aimed with the unerring skill of the perfect marksman who is sure of the vital spot. These last words must have been what filled the whole of Jerry's brain for the space of that long, tense moment. Perhaps it was true about Cordelia. Perhaps not. But even if not, all the world would believe it true, and would always believe it true. And a woman of whom the world believed such things as his wife, in his mother's place, in that proud white yacht, in the camp in the Adirondacks, in the marble cottage at Newport, 
in the great Fifth Avenue house, all prepared to throw open its splendors in just a few more days. Jerry, Cordelia whispered, faintly, huskily, still with that sense of falling, 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 but of not yet in her swift descent having reached the bottom. Jerry, Jerry! He kept his eyes from her and still did not speak. Once more, Franklin's was the prompting voice that moved affairs onward. We should perhaps give a little consideration to the newspaper men, he said softly. They came here to get the details of your marriage, Mr. Plimpton. I'm sure some of them have afternoon editions which they're eager to catch. In order that we may excuse them, Mr. Plimpton, perhaps you have something to say concerning the plans for your wedding? Jerry's figure tightened. He still avoided Cordelia's eyes. He looked at no one, just looked straight ahead of him into space. He swallowed. Then he spoke. His words were strained, yet had the precision of a determined mind. Perhaps it may be just as well to announce now, he said, that there will be no marriage. My engagement to Miss Marlowe no longer exists. Cordelia gave a silent gasp, shivered away from him, caught a chair, and stood staring at him. But though still falling, falling, she did not faint. It was Mitchell who was now the first to speak. He crossed the room in three swift strides and caught Jerry Plimpton by the shoulder and shook him furiously. You goddamn cad, he cried, his tone half snarl, half roar. You goddamn skunk! You could have saved Miss Marlowe if you'd stood by her like even half a man and not been thinking only of your damned Plimpton self. Jerry quivered, but his voice was cold, composed. What you think of me does not interest me in the slightest, so I do not care to bother to reply to you. I will say this, however, that whom I marry and whom I do not marry is a matter which is entirely my own concern and is not the concern of any other man. This was an indubitable truth. For the instant, it left Mitchell without a word in his mouth. I have only this single remark to address to you, continued Jerry. Kindly remove your hand from my person. Choking in his anger, Mitchell did so. Again, Franklin tried to push the proceedings forward. If Miss Norworth's former butler has nothing further to say... I have plenty to say, shouted the wildly wrathful Mitchell, and part of it's going to be about you, you damned liar, you damned crook of a lawyer. May I remind you, Franklin said evenly, that there is such a thing as a law for libel. Your libel law can't touch me for what I'm about to say now, for it's the truth, Mitchell shouted. He suddenly turned on Gladys and seized her arm. Gladys Norworth, do you think you can help out in a game like this and not have to pay for it? Well, you and these people can't get away with a thing like this. You can't get away with it. For now I've got something to tell. You hear me? I've got something to tell. He paused, as if to set himself the better to deliver his forthcoming blow. Gladys stared at him in quivering fear. 
fear of she knew not what. Yes, yes, breathed Cordelia with faint eagerness, stretching forth a shaking hand from her vast depth, as if to her last savior. Yes, please go on, urged Franklin. His voice was easy, composed, but behind that composure had risen a swift, indefinite dread. And then, while they all, waiting fearful, gazed at him, the hot wrath died down in Mitchell. Or perhaps it might be more correct to say that he regained control of that wrath and forced it down. After all, I was mistaken, he said. I have nothing to say. Mitchell moved back to his former place against the wall, Great relief showed in Gladys's face, and perhaps as great a relief was felt within Franklin, though he gave no sign of what he felt. Since Mr. Mitchell has nothing to say, remarked Franklin, then I beg to be allowed to say just one thing more. This is to the gentlemen from the newspapers. Since you gentlemen have the fact that Mr. Plimpton has broken his engagement to Miss Marlowe, and there is, after all, to be no marriage— and since you have furthered the fact that suit has been filed against Miss Marlowe to recover money extorted through blackmailing practices, I think that you may feel perfectly safe with no danger from libel laws in using just as you see fit anything you may have heard or seen here this morning. I am no judge of news values, but taken all in all, it seems to me that the material should make a very interesting story, and that pleasantly concluded Mr. Franklin. That, I believe, is all. And indeed, that was all. A tame, flat finish to the excitement of accusation and counter-accusation that had gone before, the people now speaking in whispers or shuffling silently out of the library. So dazed was Cordelia from the blow which had fallen upon her, so dizzy from her fall, that after Franklin's last word she hardly knew what she did, or what was done to her. In her numb pain she was at best just a silent, slow automaton, a bit of human furniture that was pushed here, pulled there. Afterwards, she had a dim memory of pulling off her engagement ring, and Jerry's other presents, and letting them fall to the library floor, not noticing Jerry so far as to hand him the gifts. And afterwards, she had a dim memory of Gladys dragging her into a corner somewhere and gloating over her and saying, I told you I'd get even with you. I told you I'd get even with you. But God, I never dreamed it would be as good as this. Someone, at the moment she didn't note who, led her silently out and put her in a car. And then this someone silently transferred from Jerry's Hispano Suiza to this other car, her bag, containing her intimate bridal glories. And then this someone silently got in beside her. Only then did she become conscious that the person next to her was Mitchell, and that she was in Mitchell's car, and that the someone who had silently taken charge of her since she had been stricken helpless was Mitchell. And thus, Hardly more than an hour after Cordelia Marlowe had driven magnificently up to her wedding day, Cordelia Marlowe, slumped and huddled and benumbed, drove ingloriously away from it. End of chapter 27